1: This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, badly morning to you. Sadly morning. Sadly morning. Badly, sadly morning. Indeed. You, yeah. I'm sitting here with a, a cup of coffee and a Kit Kat. Do you want to guess what flavour Kit Kat I've got? Is it orange? No. Oh.
2: I suppose it's not a celebratory occasion. No. What
1: flavour is it? despair
2: <laughs> mm. Mm. they brought out a special edition kitkat yeah. just for today
1: just for today every bite feels like a kick in the bollocks mm. crunch, how are you crunch crunch how are you doing you're you're in newcastle um still i am
2: party city um <laughs> i'm okay i well yeah i was at the game last night in the away end um and obviously, it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, um, but I'm all right. You know, it's uh, the morning after the night before. I feel like I've eaten a lot of uh, despair flavored Kit Kats, and I've and I feel slightly sick with it now. <laughs> I've got a Kit Kat hangover.
3: Yeah,
1: I know, and mean. a real
2: hangover. So it's a good
1: wow, double ordination. whammy. Double whammy for you this morning. Um, It's kind of difficult to know where to start with this one because I think everybody is feeling... um, Well, look, I can't speak on behalf of anybody but myself, but I'm feeling quite low and sad and unhappy and a little bit frustrated and disappointed. And I'm sure there are other emotions that everybody listening to this this morning is feeling. So... um,
2: Well, it's twofold, isn't it? Because... There's the game. Yeah. And, you know, I think for all of our fears um, about this fixture, I think everybody assumed that we might make more of a fist of it than we did on the night. Yeah. But there's also the implications of the game and sort of the, I would say, extreme likelihood at this point that that is our top four place gone.
1: Yeah. I've just had a bite of despair here while you were talking.
2: Sorry, yeah, no, do chump down on that while I'm really, uh, you know, tearing into the wounds at this point. Sure, okay. It's kind of a double blow, right? There's the Mm. short term immediacy of a really bad performance and a bad defeat. And then there is the kind of grander implications of that. And neither is particularly pleasant.
1: No, a bad performance at the worst possible time. And and maybe, look, I know we've had some bad games this season, some bad displays and some poor results and, and everything else. Um, But last night was really, it was almost shocking how bad it was. Um, I don't know if you saw Mikel Arteta on Sky Sports afterwards, but he looked like he was almost shell-shocked, if that's the right expression to use. And yeah, it's very difficult to, you know, I think there are things we can talk about and things that probably had an impact on the way that we played. But do you think, how much do you think it is, I don't know, a a team and a squad that has basically run out of steam, hit the wall, whatever you want to call it. And one that is maybe, or was maybe, overall, it isn't quite the, the word I'm looking for, but with something really big at stake. I don't want to use phrases like uh, choked or bottled or whatever, but they kind of froze. They did not rise to the occasion, I think, might be the best way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, they kind of did what they've done
2: all season when they've lost a game. You know, this is not a new thing that Arsenal lose a game and then take some time to stabilise or find Mm. themselves again. It's happened across the course of the season. Our defeats have come in bunches of twos and threes. And I think that as much as we as fans, and Mikel Arteta maybe even as a manager, sought to compartmentalise that Derby defeat and put it in a box and just move on from it, I'm not sure that these players were capable of that.
1: Does it make you reflect Um, on the Derby a little more? Does it make you think that perhaps going into that game, as much as we saw the promised land, you know, sitting in the center circle at White Hart Lane, if we'd won that game, does it make you think that a more pragmatic approach would have been to I don't know, just shut up shop a little bit or play for a draw. I know that's not particularly ambitious or or what anybody uh, really wants to see from an Arsenal side, but I think you get to a point of the season where your game plan is dependent on who you've got, what you've got to do, and what the implications of the worst outcome are. And maybe we wouldn't have been as ruined last night if we'd taken a point at White Hart Lane, because that would still have been a very good position to be in. 100%. And,
2: and you know, I know this is supposed to be a podcast about the Newcastle game, sure. but I think, I think Mikhail to really got it wrong in the derby. I think mm. as, as bad as last night was and as bad as it feels, the real final here was that North London derby. And mm. Arsenal, I think, as you kind of suggest, the mirage of that possibility of, Doing it there and winning there, I feel like we got slightly swept up in that. You, and yeah, I agree in, in the approach and also in the emotion. And I think that Arsenal needed to be more cynical, more pragmatic, and realise that was a game yeah. in which the priority was not was to avoid defeat rather than to win
1: you know what it's like um i'll use a golf analogy here it's when you hit a drive off the fairway and you're in some trees and the sensible shot is to just play out onto the fairway sideways maybe not far down the fairway but sideways but there's a glory shot you can see the gap between the two mm-hmm. trees between the if i can just get this 3 iron and bend it around that tree and then work it between the you know And we went for it and we hit a tree and ended up with the golf ball stuck in our own eye um, to an extent. Yeah, I I,
2: I agree with that. I agree. And I felt like that coming out of the game and I I feel like that even more so today. Um, You know, that's not to suggest that Arsenal (laughs) couldn't and shouldn't have fared better at at St. James's Park than they did. But I do feel as if, the weight of that Derby defeat was carried into this game. Um, Mm. But nevertheless, you know, once the whistle blows and it's a different match, you're still hoping for a lot more from the team than what what we ultimately got.
1: Yeah, look, it was an occasion for Newcastle because their um, Mm. benevolent owners uh, gave them all a nice shiny flag to wave before the game, looked impressive on the TV. I'm sure it looked okay uh, from inside the stadium, but this was their last game of the last home game of the season. They've done well. They've, um, you know, rebounded um, since Eddie Howe has taken over, and they were well and truly up for this, and that shouldn't have been any kind of a surprise to us. You know, high-energy game, crowd well up for it. It's a free hit, basically, for them. You know, they can go for it. It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because what they needed to do six months ago, they've done. So they've achieved what they need to achieve for this season. So, you know, a defeat on the final day, it wouldn't be nice, but like nobody's going to go crazy about it. So from their perspective, very much a free hit. I think it allows them, you know, to play with a certain freedom or liberation or or whatever you you want to call it. Whereas for us, the stakes were so high that it was inhibiting in a way that we we couldn't find The basics. We couldn't do the basics from the very start. We couldn't cope with what Newcastle did. And, you know, apart from maybe the San Maximan shot, which came fairly late in the first half, I don't think there was a huge amount of threat, but there was a lot of pressure. It was consistent pressure on uh, a defense, which was a little bit makeshift, not necessarily in terms of personnel, but in terms of the... The fitness and the physical readiness of, of some of those players and the inability to do what we know we can do on the ball, take the ball, use it. Even if we play a bit of horseshoe of death or whatever you want to call it, we couldn't even do that. So it was quite worrying that it looked like the occasion was was getting to the players and getting to the team, despite what I'm sure was preparation, organization, the the raising the possibility that this might be um, something we have to deal with we just couldn't.
2: No, and it was very atypical Newcastle game. I mean, I look back through in preparation for this game, some of their recent home matches, and they've had some good results and some good wins. But even when they've won, they've tended to have between about thirty and forty percent possession. And I think I'm right in saying at half time in this game. They'd had about sixty. Um, which is really mm. really unusual. Um, and we just couldn't keep hold of the ball, as you say. Um, some of the basic principles in terms of playing out from the back, we didn't really seem comfortable doing that. Um, we looked a bit rattled and we couldn't live with the intensity of the press, the crowd, um, Really, nothing was going right at all. And you're right to say there weren't many chances in the game. There was obviously the moment Ramsdale was caught on the ball. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some Maximan shot. Um, but, I, you know, and I've not seen the game back, but I can't remember too many chances beyond that of either, uh, either end. But I found myself watching that first half and just thinking, Arsenal desperately need to get to half-time. It was very clear that we weren't going to improve in the course of that half. There was enough wrong that I thought Arsenal's only mm. hope here is to get in at the break and bang a few heads together and hope they can produce something very, very different in the second half.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like at nil-nil, it was like, Oof, that was bad. But at least they've got a chance now to Yeah, they kind of got away the with the first room. half, you know. Yeah, a little bit. But I mean, obviously there were... There were issues, I think, um, fitness issues, which I think played a part in the way that we played um, to an extent. Um, and I, I think we'll talk about those in a minute. But obviously we lost Takahiro Tomiyasu uh, to a hamstring strain towards the end of the first half, which is which is not ideal. But like you, I thought, look, get in, halftime, sort this shit out because that's nowhere near good enough in terms of a, a performance and, and – you know afterwards i don't think anyone pulled any punches about the level of the performance nobody thought it was acceptable i saw arteta speak i saw granit Shaka speak i saw Bakayo saka speak you know none of them tried in any way to defend or to justify the way that we played because you just can't um but how did you view the how did you view the the second half because i i don't know that it was Significantly better, but it did feel a little bit like we were more in the game than in the first half. Uh, a little bit, like not much, but you know, I think we were we were capable of of getting forward a little more in that second period. Maybe I'm just misremembering it, but
2: no, it you not be right. I it mean, didn't I, feel to me it through yeah. the fog of my disappointment and to be honest, not a brilliant vantage point um at St James's, but mm. well, a very good vantage point, but very far away from the pitch. I um yeah, there were moments, you know, I remember Nuno, for example, getting in a couple of times on the mm. left hand side, and I felt like we were a little better on the ball. I guess with that came the risk that we would get caught, you know, and get punished and we we absolutely were caught for that Newcastle goal. Mm. And something we've spoken about many times with this team is the importance of the first goal. And so obviously, as soon as that went in, you know, you absolutely feared the worst. And that was only, what was that, 55 minutes?
1: Yeah, I think so. There or thereabouts, wasn't it? Um, I'll just look up the timing of it. But yeah, I mean, what did you make of the goal? Um,
2: I I haven't actually seen it really again because um, the ever useful and resourceful Arsenalist has been Clamped down on today <laughs> by, by the copyright guys. Um, so you you'll have to give me your thoughts. Really, I mean, um,
1: well, I mean, there was a there was a, um, a foul throw awarded against Nuno Tavares.
2: Yeah, which seems very harsh. From what I, I have seen a clip of that, and I, I mean, feels like a throw in that you see every single game in the Premier League go unpunished. But there you go.
1: Yeah, look and. That's probably the least of our worries. But it it felt like the kind of decision which only ever gets given against us. And I'm not making any excuses. But, like, you know, you see those throw-ins game after game after game. Um, Was it Michael Cox did an article on The Athletic about Trent Alexander-Arnold's throw-in technique where he's basically shot-putting the ball? I assume it's legal, but still. Um, But I think from there we get caught. um, Cedric is too far upfield. And then he gets in a race with Joe Linton down the left-hand side, which he's not going to win. And I'm absolutely convinced that Ben White is and was nursing his hamstring through that game. And I think maybe Mm -hmm. under normal circumstances, Ben White runs across to get into that space. Whereas I think being cautious about his hamstring might have made him say, look, I'll stay central. I'll try and block the cross as and when it comes in. And, of course, his attempt to do that just forced it into his own net beyond Aaron Ramsdale. An unfortunate own goal um, from a player, you know, who I I think we have to give credit to because he was very clearly playing with an injury. He's pushed himself to get out there to help the team, but it had a, a marked effect on aspects of his performance. I'm not criticizing him for that. I just think that we have to take that into account when we're talking about this goal in particular.
2: Yeah, did the striker get a touch to it, and then it nicked off Ben White, or did Ben White just stick it in the near post?
1: I don't know. I thought I thought at first it was Wilson's goal, but then the replay. I thought it was an own goal, and I haven't seen the um, I haven't seen the like the conclusive replay after replay right. after replay one. Um, just sort of bundled in. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. I mean. I don't think he was hundred percent at all um I mean you could I mean, you could probably say that with most of the Arsenal players, but we know that he was carrying a problem and I don't doubt that it affected the way in which he defended that channel. Mm. But you know, it was it was exactly what Newcastle would have wanted, really, a break into space and their threat when it did come had come down that side primarily. Um, we'd lost, had we, Tomiyasu, by that point. Yeah, he well. went off
1: in the first half. So
2: Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was a, a disappointing goal to concede. Maybe injuries were a factor. I saw Gary Neville was really critical, wasn't he, of Ben White? But then, well, I'm sure we'll come to him. Um, mm. I, and I have to be honest and say that at that point, I, I had very little hope of us getting back into the game. I just didn't think we were at it in any way, really.
1: No, and look, the... The fact that Newcastle were able to make a concussion sub meant that we had three subs to True. use in the in the second half, which was like, I don't know. I mean, it felt, oh, wow, we've got an extra one here. And we threw on Lacazette for Tavares. Um, Martinelli had come on for Smith-Rowe, who who just wasn't in the game at all. Um, Lacazette came on. Martinelli came on. Nicolas Pepe came on. And it was like throwing the attacking kitchen sink. You know, this was everything that we had from an attacking perspective to put on the pitch, right? Mm-hmm. And it really didn't make any difference. Um, no,
2: if anything, that was the period of the game in which Newcastle had their best chances. Um, mm. You know, there was probably two or three that might might well have ended in a goal. Um, and so... Yeah, the the changes I don't think helped. I I would slightly query some of them. I'm not sure. Listen, I think Tavares is uh, a flawed player, but I think he was at least providing some threat on the overlap. I thought it was a bit unlucky, maybe.
1: Yeah, I didn't think he was bad at all, and I don't really get why you would take him off and play Martinelli so deep. On the left hand side.
2: It a kind of wing back. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, you will have been able to see better than I was, um, you know, from a television where exactly he was positioned, but. Look, I get it. You're taking off a fullback. You're putting on an uh, an attacker, uh, which I think there was Tavares came off and Lacazette came on because he was keeping yeah, Enquetia right. on. So it was basically defender for attacker, defender for attacker. But I think you have to try and maintain some kind of, of balance too. It was Gabriel who came off for Pepe. You know, so we really were just taking defenders off and putting attackers on and hoping something would happen. But you're right that during that period... Newcastle had chances. I think Wilson shot over. There was one where he hooked or looped a shot from distance really just wide. Joe Linton shot over the bar. I think Ben White made one, maybe two really, really good, important blocks in our uh, penalty box because Newcastle were finding space uh, and they were beginning to open us up a bit because, look – we were disjointed when you have those players on the pitch all at the same time. How 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 do you assess the performances of the substitutes in the context of a game in which nobody played particularly well? I mean, Lacazette came on, I think he had nine touches of the ball in I think about 34 minutes in total of playing time. Is that a Lacazette issue or is that as much down to how poor the team were. Nicolas Pepe brought on to help us create things. Nicolas Pepe basically gave Newcastle a two-on-one chance, which again, Ben White did really, really well to defend. He was left two-on-one in our box. And this is a guy who's got basically one hamstring at the moment. So uh, is it fair to assess them? Is it just part of the overall performance? How, how do you view that?
2: Honestly, I think it's a really difficult night to look at individuals because, mm. and, and I'm sure we'll have questions at, like about individuals, but I really feel that front to back, Arsenal just didn't click, weren't at it. And I know there are individual errors through the team that contribute to that, but I'm not sure you could necessarily single anybody out as sort of better or indeed worse than anyone else. Um, this was just really bad. I, that's how I saw it from from where I was stood. Mm. What did you think?
1: Well, you're always kind of hopeful that a substitute will come on and make a big difference. That's is, true. You know, is, but is that is that is that? A, I mean, yeah. Is I mean, it look, maybe that's unfair. Yeah, maybe that's just unfair. Maybe it's desperation. You know. Um, but I think it. You know. On a night when nobody was good, individually, collectively, we were really, really bad. I do wonder if it's fair to to highlight the lack of contribution from substitutions when there were players who were on the pitch for longer who didn't contribute either. It's just that when, you know, look, I think Nicolas Pepe, his goose is cooked at Arsenal. But, you know, it's it's just disheartening, isn't it, to see a player come on the pitch and overhit crosses and give a simple ball away which gives Newcastle a chance when we're trying to build some kind of momentum um but you know that maybe feels unfair and maybe I am being unfair it's just that in those dark moments where the game is getting away from you as the clock is ticking towards 75 80 85 90 and you know actually that there's going to be six or seven minutes of of injury time because of substitutions, because of the the injury that happened at the start of the second half. You're thinking, well, look, if we can nick one, you just never know. Um, So I was, you know, a little bit disappointed, but I I do think it's more to do with um, collective underperformance than individual underperformance. And basically those guys are being thrown on as a kind of Hail Mary, you know.
2: Yeah, and and what are we throwing on? Do you know what I mean? I think yeah, maybe it says something about the options. Um, I think, but also you have to look at the manager. You have to say were they the right changes? You know, did mm. they inspire a change in the dynamic of the game? But what is he? Uh, what
1: else has he got?
2: You know, I mean, I, I hear you. you I know. hear you. And and when your side can't do the basic things and keep the ball, mm. I honestly don't know. What you're supposed to do about that? Like it, it it's uh, <laughs> obviously you're responsible for it. But mm. as you say, he seemed pretty shocked afterwards, and it, it is sort of relatively difficult to explain. Yeah, um,
1: I mean, the only other changes, yeah, the only other options he had on the bench um, was uh, Albert sambi Lakonga as a, a, an inverted commas senior player, and then he's got three kids and Burn Leno apart from Martinelli, Pepe, and Lacazette. I mean, that's all he had to use. Whether he used them the right way, that's a question. But I don't know what else he could have done, really.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a sort of a, a theme of our games that almost every game we play at the present time, you'll find a pundit or a journalist or a commentator pointing out that the opposition's bench looks stronger than ours, Um Mm. and that's kind of the, the state of the squad at this point. I'm not sure it's quite true, to be honest, of the Newcastle bench, but um, I think that would be an exaggeration. But clearly, the guys who came on weren't able to make a difference. I mean, I, I knew as soon as Pepe came on, I was like, this guy is on an absolute hiding into nothing here, and when he made a couple of mistakes, I was like, of course, he's going to get killed for it. But ultimately, like you say, his goose is cooked, and I, I don't think... We didn't learn anything new about Pepe yesterday. Let's put it like that. No, um,
1: no it was more of the sure. same. Um, Newcastle's second goal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, do I need to watch it again? Do I need to put myself through that? Do you think I do? Maybe I. I will. get a bit of a break with the ball down there. Ant and Deck, will you fuck off? Uh, sorry, I just am rewinding the game, and they're just showing fucking Ant and Deck or at least one of them anyway. Um, The cast
2: of Alphavidus and Pat, all these Northeast icons being roped in to endorse the Saudi regime.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, the goal, I think Ben White steps out. He shouldn't. Ramsdale makes a reasonably decent save, but if you look back at it, um, as the ball, as Ben White steps out, if Cedric isn't, Three or four yards behind the line, yeah, then, the line's not level, is it? Then Newcastle are offside, and it doesn't happen. I mean, it's probably a moot point. Uh, uh, really, you know, one nil. Like I think we would have lost it one nil, you know. So two nil just adds a little bit of gloss for Newcastle, a little bit of extra pain for us. But I don't know that we. Yeah, I mean, he should have just fucking Rick, Jesus. Um. Yeah, I don't know why I watched that again. I'm after fucking really annoying myself, even though I just said the goal is basically, <laughs> basically, you know, irrelevant because I think Newcastle would have gone on to win the game anyway. But it's absolutely fucking infuriated me. Um,
2: yeah, and I mean, it's, it's been a big theme this season: our inability to claw points from losing situations. Um, you know, Arsenal have have lost. a a good chunk of games this season, 13 now of 37 in the Premier League. Um, Mm. And to an extent, at a certain point in this campaign, you look at our lack of draws and it's a real positive, you know, because we've translated a lot of those to three points. Um, And that's true. And we've matched Spurs for wins, 21. We've won more games this season than Chelsea. but That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) But we've not been able to pull some of those trailing mm. games back to draws and had we just done that in a few we might be in a, a very different position Um mm. so yeah I mean it was a deflating experience to be there for it. I have to say I'm um, sure I'm sure what was the I feel like I've been to two other people's parties do you know what I mean like I, I went to Spurs and they had great atmosphere and they got what they wanted went to Newcastle um Mm. similar what was the what was
1: the mood like among the away fans last night
2: uh well pre-game great and i have to say like it was a pleasure to meet so many away fans and people who've come from all over it's not easy to get to newcastle on a monday night and certainly those traveling supporters deserve more than they got Afterwards, I think people were – I think people were surprised, actually. I think people were surprised at, at the degree to which we kind of didn't turn up. And I think if we had gone down swinging,
3: mm.
2: then I honestly think people would have, would have accepted that. Um, not that they don't accept this, but I no, think people I- would have been able to be at peace with that. Um, but we – it just feels like it passed us by a bit. And, you know, these two games, Spurs and Newcastle, stakes were so high, the prize was so great, and I'm not sure we really... It felt like we were ever really in the fight, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't uh, like a, um honourable effort and we just sort of fell short. We No. We really... And this was a lot worse than Spurs in that respect. Oh, like, I think so, yeah, but... Well, you know, Spurs, Spurs'
2: first twenty minutes, I think we really, you know, we we threatened and we showed that we had, you know, at least had an intent, maybe too much intent, as we were saying at the start. Mm. Whereas here, it was pretty mm, lifeless, really. I mean, it wasn't the team that we recognised and it wasn't the team that we followed all season long and that we have believed in. Um, mm. So I think people were down and i think people were quite angry as well as always is the case after any defeat i think there was a lot of kind of frustration
1: around and recrimination and we're looking for explanations and reasons as to why things like this about january well yeah well i think that's absolutely fair i think it's also absolutely right because we've said here more than once, and I don't think it's a a unique observation. I think it's one shared by many people that what we did in January was a big risk. It was, it was a gamble. And if it, if it paid off, then brilliant. And if it didn't, well, you know, there's, um, I'm going to say there's consequences, you know, but I, I don't think you've got any hiding place as a football club. When you do what you did in January, And you fall just about short from where Mm. you need to go. And I think this is the reality of, 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 um, of where we are, that this hurts a lot, not because we're 10 points or 20 points off where we need to go. We're like one point or two points away from where we need to be. You know what I mean? That's why this is so, um, painful this morning, um, and it's not even hindsight to say that january was a risk or a gamble um and i understand no. i understand there were you know there were attempts to sign a top level striker which didn't happen but that is tacit acknowledgement that you need a striker and and ultimately james like everyone's talking about like Antonio Conte has been at Spurs for five minutes and look at what he's doing with that team and he's going to get them into the Champions League and we've bottled it once again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if that's the way you think about it, absolutely fine. I'm not uh, here to tell you you can't or shouldn't or, or anything else. But what's the difference between the two teams? If I was to ask you, like, what is the one difference between the two teams... Yeah, of course it's Kane and Song. Exactly, exactly. And and in 2022, uh, I wrote about this today in the blog, right? And, and we're looking at the amount of goals that we score. And, and as you say, some of those defeats, which could have been turned into draws if we'd been able to nick a few extra goals here and there. The difference between Arsenal and Spurs is they've got two world-class strikers who decide games for them. And we don't have anyone approaching that quality. Gabriel Martinelli in 2022, all these stats are from 2022. One goal in 19 appearances. Smith Rowe, two goals in 18 appearances. Alexandra Lacazette, one goal in 18 appearances, and that was a penalty. Bakayo Saka, six goals in 20 appearances, who carried some of the burden for us. Martin Odegaard, Mm. three goals in 22 appearances. Eddie Nketiah, four goals in 20 appearances, but both of those, or, you know, he scored a brace in two games and didn't score in 18 of the 20. And when Mm. when you lay it out like that, it's kind of incredible that we were
2: <laughs> even in the mad race. It's not that we've scored any goals at all. Yeah. like that. And it's sort Sorry, of mad that we... Sorry, just knock at my door, Andrew. One yeah, second, I just no got to answer it. <gasps>
1: Doorbell music. Doorbell music, thank goodness for that. <laughs>
2: Wanted to clean the room, Andrew. Oh, they know what I did in here last night in protest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's early in the day. Surely you have until midday. This is this is this is disgraceful. Hotel behind. I know. Behavior. I
2: know. Um, um, but yeah, yeah, those stats are kind of staggering. Um, you know, you list it like that, and you're just like, how did we win any any games? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just generally, yeah, it, it is kind of mad. goals have dried up in a big way. Um, Mm. We've shipped goals as well. I mean, you know, such a key part of I think the first half of the season was that stable defensive unit. I saw a good stat from Opta about this. Um, You know, the back four, the first choice back four as we would think of it, Tierney, Tomiasu, Gabriel and White. Uh, When that played together our defensive record was we conceded just 0.8 goals per game without them mm. it was 1.4 and actually although we think of that back four as being the back four they have only started together 10 times in the league this season.
1: Do do we know which, what the record is in terms of wins and draws? With I that? don't right
2: okay. but we won plenty of games without them Mm-hmm. You know, there was that good spell after Christmas where Cedric came in and we we won a few games on the spin, but the clean sheets certainly dried up. Um, and ultimately, eventually, that's going to catch up with you, especially if, if you're not if you're not scoring goals and you're conceding them. Guys, I'm no expert, <laughs> but in in football, it's that's less than ideal. Um, mm. So yeah, I think at both ends of the pitch, we we've came up short and and, and in truth I think if we are honest with ourselves we have been stumbling towards the line sure for a little while probably since Crystal Palace Um, you know we lost what's the stat I think we've lost six of the last eleven games and we got those wins on the spin against United and Chelsea and West Ham West Ham West Ham but we did it with a pretty makeshift selection. And I have to be honest, nothing about those results felt hugely sustainable.
1: Yeah. It wasn't like they were really convincing wins. I think we got a few things that went like, I'm not taking anything away from them because they were great and they were hugely enjoyable. And I think the players worked hard for them, but a few things went our way in those games. If you yeah. like, you know, the Chelsea I think game go our
2: way in the run of three defeats as well. Yeah. Um, that, that that kind of evened out a little bit, I think. Um, but yeah, I think we've been stumbling towards the line. And, and I saw a, a line from Sam Dean in the Telegraph this morning who said that, I'm paraphrasing, but that Arsenal's first 11 is good enough for the top four. And I think I agree with that. But as soon as we lost the ability to put that 11 out with any kind of regularity maybe even our first 12 or 13.
1: Mm, I'm not sure I agree. I mean, really? I'm not sure I agree because I think there's a big, big gap in the squad. Like who is your... centre forward. Yeah, at centre yeah. forward. That, that's that's the, fair, actually, That's yeah. the big missing piece for me. Um, because, you know, I think you can say that there, there is, obviously, I think there is uh, potential in this team, these young players. I think we... Uh, as, as hard as it might be to to hear it. Um, I, I do think there has been progress this season. I think there are some foundations. I think there are things to build on, but there are very clearly things which are um in need of, of serious improvement. And we were talking the other day, weren't we? We were saying like, if we get to the top four with neni with Holding, with Cedric, with, Tavares, with Nketiah up front, it's a miracle in a way. But then it's also unrealistic to think that uh, these guys can come in and maintain a level of performance. I think when... You know, if, if you've got your first team out and let's say Tommy Asu is injured and Cedric comes in and look, he's far from my favorite player uh, and fingers crossed we find a better solution at right back next uh, next season. But I think if he comes into a settled side with 10 other guys who are, in essence, first choice players, it's easier for him to not get carried, but for him to perform at a level which, which is... Um, reasonable but I think when you've got four or five players who are basically backup players in your team playing week in week out it starts to crumble Um, all Thrays over at the edges doesn't yeah, it yeah exactly it's a great way yeah. of putting it yeah
2: and to to come back to Sam's point I think I think you're right like there is a massive gap in the squad at centre forward maybe it would have been more correct to say Arsenal's first 11 might have been good enough for the top 4 on this occasion in this season but I do think in January a gamble it's felt like a gamble was taken that um it, it, we're going to stick with this 11 and it's got to work until the end of the season and that just didn't come to pass um and, and yeah. yeah it's um yeah it it's it kind of is what it is i mean it would have been fantastic and it was there for us. Don't, I don't want anyone th- listening to think that because I'm saying we probably don't have enough quality or we're not good enough that we couldn't have done it. That's the point. Like, we absolutely could have done it. it, it we were the front runners, yeah. and had things gone differently, had we performed better on certain occasions in certain circumstances, it was there for us. Um, and it is undoubtedly a failure to not get it from the position we were in. But I do think that kind of some of the underlying issues just caught up with us.
1: Before we go into part two, because we've got loads of questions which touch on the the, the bigger issues and, and everything yeah. else. We did mention January. And there are a couple of uh, couple of questions here. One from Matt Garden, who's at Matty G. Uh, On Twitter, he says, Do you think Arteta's trip to the US in January, I know we talked about this a little bit, was to beg for funds, a last-ditch pitch to get some cash in that window to cover the striker position? And on the Discord, the land says, What do you make of this Arteta quote about January? I I think I remember at the time both of you saying uh, you you thought he'd be mad. That nobody was brought in does this confirm to you that bringing in no players wasn't his choice and this was a quote from i think from his press conference last night where he said we've done what we can and what we're allowed to do and what we could do the team we were able to build is what we're what we were able to build but it's also the team that got us this far
2: yeah i saw that i was really interested by that i mean as i said before Coaches always want signings. I can't, with the exception of Arsene Wenger, (laughs) I can't (laughs) think of many managers who sort of actively don't want to make signings and improve the squad they have available to them. And even Arsene wanted to. He was just very fussy about what constituted improvement. Um, And I don't believe for a second that Arteta was like, nah, let's not push on. In fact, he was saying publicly Every window is an opportunity. We have to maximise every chance we have to improve the squad. And and, and I, I do not know this. Like, this is pure guesswork on my part. But I don't know if that conversation in America was about begging for funds. I, my instincts tell me it was much more about assuring Arteta that support was still there, even if signings weren't forthcoming. And that the lack of signings if, should that come to pass between then and the deadline day, would kind of be factored into mm. assessment. Um, it's That is honestly complete speculation because that was a private conversation between Stan Kroenke and Mikel Arteta and I've got no idea what was said. But
3: yeah,
2: yeah it, it feels, it sort of adds up to me, you know, that, that they didn't do anything they presented a United image as a club. This is a strategic choice. We wait for the summer. He got the new contract anyway. I don't know. But, but mm. I think, look at the last two games we've lost. Spurs and Newcastle, both two teams who strengthened substantially in that January window. yeah, And whose second half of the season was markedly better. As a consequence there's no way they won't be unless their hands were completely tied and we literally had no money and couldn't spend which arteta arguably is potentially alluding to we don't know what he means then there's no way they won't be reflecting on that yeah and questioning if it was the right decision and ultimately they made that decision saying well we've got our targets in the summer." and it's all about our targets in the summer and we don't want to defer from that plan and the funny thing about that is it kind of means pff, to, to to figure out if that was right or not we almost have to wait another year because we need to see do they get the names they want in the summer yeah. is it worth the wait do, Does it does that pan out next season mm-hmm. because right now this morning it feels like that was the wrong choice
1: yeah, and I suppose we should also point out that, like when you reference what Tottenham did in the January uh, January window, one of those was a loan, you know. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, weren't they not both loans? I think they were both loans, but maybe
2: with obligations, right? Um, anyway, um, look, it just I think yeah. it,
1: it shows that look, you don't have to waste money on a signing, but you can invest in a loan player who can help you um sorry but, benson
2: uh, curb was reported as a permanent deal but yeah um ah listen they were good signings they were good signings and they really improved them um uh i think there i think there were deals there are always deals to be done it's just if you're prepared to kind of cut your cloth compromise on mm. targets and Make short-term decisions. I mean, a lot of people in January talked about Bruno Guimaraes, didn't they? Um, as a potential Arsenal signing. I don't think they were ever very interested, to be honest with you. He
1: probably should have been.
2: But, <laughs> well, he's been excellent yeah. for Newcastle. He's been very good. And he was very good last night.
1: mm. Okay, look, I, I think we need to go to part two because there's still loads to to parse here and there's some questions about what it all means and where we're going and what's oh, the good. point of anything you know those cheery happy ones that we can get our teeth into. so that, that sounds fun actually yeah okay yeah. okay. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, that's, let's do it. Yeah, I think I will go and make a, a cup of coffee of eternal sadness and um, <laughs> come back. We'll do your questions in part two right after this.
0: And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome back to the ArsCast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at Gunnarblog, and at Arsblog. Also on the Ars Blog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Ars Blog member on Patreon. Um, Can I start? Do you mind if I start? Yeah,
3: of course.
1: Um, This one comes from F.K., um, who's at I don't know how to pronounce this. At fucking. No, I don't either. Fuckanage, fuckanage, fuck, fuckanage. He of Latte Firm fame, anyway. Sure. FK asks uh, Opinions seem split this morning from this is failure to the club has overachieved. Your thoughts, and if you had to lean towards one end of the spectrum, which viewpoint would you take?
2: Uh yeah, there's a lot of uh debate around this morning, shall we say? Um I, I really hate to sort of dodge the question, but I think there are elements of truth in both. Um, I think that finishing in the top six for Arsenal at this point in time is about par. It's about, it's sort of what was needed. It's the it's the step that needed to be taken. Um, if we finish fifth, as now looks likely, I think that's... Mm, what's the word? Probably about Beason. right. In and about, terms of, it's me for a team that's won, you know, 20 odd games, but lost 13 probably
1: feels about right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, feels leaving about, aside the context of the last couple of weeks, I just think in, t- in general terms, if you were to say to someone we're about the fifth best team in the Premier League, that feels about right. Even if I think the margin between ourselves and, and Spurs is, is, relatively small. And as I I said in the first half of the show, the difference is the strikers. Yeah. Stars
2: make teams, you know, stars are a huge factor in football and elite goal scorers, certainly. And, um, so yeah, I, I don't think that this final position, if this is indeed how it turns out is a failure. I do think that anytime a situation is in your hands, um, and it gets away from you. Then. Of course that is a failure. But I also think that. You know I saw a few clips of the tele coverage of the game again. And I do think that. Some of the kind of narrative around Arsenal is. Overblown and exaggerated. And. And. As uncomfortable as we may find this, I I think that basically the sort of cultural perception of Arsenal and Spurs in the kind of wider football community is pretty similar. And that when something goes wrong for one of them or when they come up short, um, the overarching story there, the one that people adopt and the cliche that people cling to is one of collapse and lack of mental strength and integrity and all those things. Mm. And I I, personally, I feel like that's a little a bit overblown. Um, We just Mm. lost too many football matches. (laughs) What do you think as to the original question?
1: Um... This is one of those where you have to make the point that what you think at the start of the season can change halfway through a season and also towards the end of a season it can change. I don't want to be one of those that says, if you had told us at the start of the season we'd finish fifth, we'd all be really happy with that. Um, I think there probably would have been some kind of acceptance that that would be reasonable progress getting back into Europe. That was a key thing that we had to do this season. And we've done it, you know? So uh, I don't think you can call the season a failure. I think you can look at the last couple of weeks and you can look at the opportunity that we had to get into the Champions League and call that aspect of it a failure without doing down the other things that have been pretty decent so far this season. Um, And I I I don't think that's dodging the question. I I think you, you, you know, the position we were in with a Derby, with a game against Newcastle, all due uh, respect, et cetera, et cetera. We, we failed. We didn't turn up. We didn't perform. We lost the Derby. I know there was a contentious decision here and there, but like we just didn't perform against Newcastle. So you can't excuse that. And you can't say, well, it's okay to play like that. You can't achieve Champions League. You can't achieve a top four finish if you play like that. Just no two ways about it, but.
2: No, that's true. But but we, what I would say is, you know, we didn't really achieve anything in these finals, in, in these big, big games. But when I think about why we haven't made top four, or why we're very unlikely to, I don't really think about that Newcastle game. Like, we were really diabolical, and nothing worked back to front. And maybe the circumstances played into that. But I also think, like, sometimes that can happen. And and when I think about why we haven't done it, I think it is a bigger picture thing. I think it's... I think about the injuries, the transfers, the three consecutive defeats around the Palace game. Like, yes, we had the chance to do it against Spurs and against Newcastle. But as I say, I think we've been stumbling towards the line a bit anyway mm. and but you know it's interesting that question of like if i told you at the start of the season people always say i see a lot of people say if i told you after the first three games that we'd finish in the top 6 mm. you wouldn't believe you you would have been thrilled mm. and like well the answer is like yes of course but i also think that's a bit of a red herring because i think if you told most people before a ball was kicked that we'd finish fifth I think most people would have taken that because I think people people recognised that squad wasn't complete. Like at the end of the transfer window, which I know is after the first ball was kicked, I think we were all sitting here, again, I'm massively generalising, but certainly you and I were sitting here saying, yeah, they did some good work on the squad, but we still haven't got a striker that we need and we still haven't got a central midfielder that we need. Yeah. And here we are at the end of the season saying the same thing. Um, I, I only bring that up just to make the point that like, I think that raises the question over the January trance window again. You know, an opportunity was there to address those issues that we all know are present. They weren't addressed. Lo and behold, it came back to bite us.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, look, when I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about where we are in the table right now, I'm, I'm absolutely gutted. Like, genuinely, I don't think I've been this impacted by an outcome. I don't want to say necessarily the Newcastle game on its own or the Spurs game on its own or, or whatever, but the outcome of a season for, for maybe the, maybe the Emory season where we blew it as well, but this feels a bit more visceral. I don't quite know how to describe it. So I'm not happy with the fact that we're in fifth. I don't think anybody should be happy with the fact we're in fifth, given that where we were, um, but i can sit here and i can th- i can like i'm not scratching my head wondering how do we get better which is where i have been a lot in the last few years like how the fuck do we make a team what you know what kind of signings do we need to make to to really make progress and that yes. that part of it is pretty fucking evident right you mentioned it central midfield striker strikers four words you know yeah and that part of it I suppose is what um A gives me a little bit of hope you know I'm fluctuating I'm sitting here and I'm thinking like fuck we almost got to top four with this motley crew of you know fringe players and guys who are leaving and guys whose contracts are running out and guys who really shouldn't be at this football club and like If we can add the right couple of signings, you know what could we do next season? Because I think there's this idea, which I don't really buy into, that this was our only chance to get back into the Champions League, to get back into the top four, which I don't think is true. It was a great chance. It was a brilliant opportunity. But you can't think that, okay, well, that's it now. We're never going to be able to do it. Because what we are trying to do, I think, as a football club, is build something that can... Um, maintain a level of consistency at this level of the Premier League table, which isn't to say it's going to be easy. Of course, not going to be easy, but, and everyone says, well, look, United won't be as bad next season or Newcastle are going to spend a lot or Spurs will be better next season under Conte again. But like we can improve, we can do better. Everyone Everyone thought United were going to be brilliant this season when they signed Sancho and Ronaldo and Varane and all these signings. So, you know, I can, I'm despondent, but also strangely, I don't know if optimistic is necessarily the right word, but I feel like, I feel like we can be better next season if we make the right signings because those holes in our squad, those holes in our team are so glaringly obvious.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think this was a very good opportunity to do it yeah. because of the fixture list. Well, one thing I'll say is that the advantage of a sparse fixture list is is a settled team, being able to name a settled team. And we had that in periods this season, but towards the end of the season, we really lost it. And so we kind of lost our competitive advantage at that point, And that's when things started to fall apart. I... I don't reflect on the season as a failure generally because just speaking purely personally, I've enjoyed it and, you know, I have to go to the games, I pay for my season ticket and, you know, I invest a lot of time watching Arsenal and it matters to me that I am kind of entertained and drawn in and care and that I... Yeah, I like, have a good time doing it. And, sure. and more so this season than any season for a while. Um, that has been the case. And so the sort of material outcome of where we finish, I have to be honest, for me is secondary to that. But in the cold light of day, I am also gutted. And it's not just the Champions League. It's finishing below Spurs. Of course. That is... I think if that happens again this year, I think I'm right in saying it'll be five years on the trot, which, you know, at one stage just appeared unthinkable. So mm. um, that really compounds the the disappointment. I, I wanted to ask this question because yeah. we've spoken a lot about signings and um, a question here from E. Gooner on Twitter says, barring a final day miracle come on Norwich, um, do you think the lack of Champions League football next season will hurt our chances of signing our main forward targets. Do we have to offer more money to land said targets
1: now? Mm. Yeah, we had a number of questions like that. Um, One on the Discord as well, Ross Clockend88 said, without Champions League football, will we still be able to bring in a player like Gabriel Jesus? Um, And also John Larkin, how damaging is tonight's defeat, do you think, in terms of our summer signing activities? We've been linked with high-profile players. Does failure to get top four massively... um, he says, "Alert our plans," but I, I guess um, change our plans. I think um, they probably. I think Amy said on the podcast, on the Askcast a couple of weeks ago, that they they had lists of players. These are the players that we'll we'll go for if we don't have Europe. These are the Europa League players. These are the Champions League players. I think it's self evident that if you're in the Champions League, you can attract higher quality players because you can offer them the highest quality club football, uh, in the game. And that's what they want. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't sign good players or even attract those good players. If you can convince them that you're, you know, you're going to make progress and they can be part of that. Um, you know, didn't Chelsea make a load of signings when they finished 12th in the league one year and they didn't have any European football to offer, Maybe it was Kante who came in that season and, and um, you know, a couple of others. Mm. Um, it is going to make it more difficult. A, from a prestige slash um, attracting the, the player's point of view, but also from a financial point of view, because the difference between Champions League football and Europa League football is about 60, 70 million pounds in revenue. That goes a long way when you're trying to rebuild the squad and you're trying to attract some, some big players. So I think it is inevitable that it m- will have an impact on what we do in the transfer market, but how aware we're going to be of that remains to be seen, you know?
2: Yeah. I, I think there's definitely a financial consequence, not finishing in the Champions League, you know, it sort of, Funnily enough, being in the Champions League is is the best way to build a Champions League winning squad, mm. or oh, sorry, Champions League quality squad, I should say, because of the funding that comes with it. In terms of sort of the individual players wanting to join or not, whether or not we are in the Champions League, I don't really believe that will be a big barrier, because you know Martin Odegaard came to Arsenal when we had no European football at all to offer. Thomas Partey came to Arsenal when we were very much not in the Champions League. Mm. If you can persuade a player of the project in a compelling fashion and you offer them the right salary, then I think they will come. Like the names that were being talked about, people like Gabriel Jesus and people like Yuri mm. Like, Tielemans, I think I'm sure they'd love to play in the Champions League, but I'm not sure that alone would be a kind of, Decisive factor. I, I really believe that if a player wants to make the move, and there are so many mm. factors in that—the city, the manager, the opportunity to play, um, the wages. pay packet—then <laughs> I think, I think you can still do that. The question is, how much can you do? Mm. You know, does it cost us another, an extra mark? You know, would would we have made an extra marquee signing? with that Champions League money that now is beyond us. I think that is the risk. But on a case-by-case basis, I think you can still convince players to join if they believe the club is going in the right direction and will Mm. get there.
1: And look, I'm not saying I'm happy to be in the Europa League rather than the Champions League. I I fully buy into the idea that playing at the, the best level you can is the best thing for... A football club and for the players uh, they wanted to be there you could see how much um, they were devastated at the end but the europa league is probably a winnable competition for us as well that's an aspect of next season that maybe we can consider I, it's probably no comfort but you know i don't see us as being ready to win the champions league just yet but we could potentially go far in the Europa League, um, for good and for bad, of course. Um, uh, and there are elements of squad building and, and giving playing time to young players that could be beneficial. So that's me trying to uh, find the silver lining of the um, the very big cloud that... that um, Can I, can that I ask you a is.
2: question on that then? Go on. Because on the Discord, Kari says, our squad has been reduced to complete tatters by injury, fatigue, illness and suspension in a season without Europe and with early domestic cup exits. The players went on it today, and I don't want to excuse them, but most of them looked exhausted from minute one. How on earth are we going to survive next season with (laughs) the Europa League, even with the addition of new players?
1: Well, we can talk about quality, can't we? But we also have to talk about depth. Yeah. We have to talk about depth.
2: That's part of the quality question, I think, you know.
1: You know, and there's no two ways about it. We need a bigger squad, we need a deeper squad, we're gonna be in Europe. Um, and I think Arteta has said that, Nedu has said that uh, already, that with Europe, we need a bigger, deeper squad. How many of those are going to be signings? How many of those are going to be academy kids who are brought forward? I mean, I don't really see too many of them that are absolutely banging the door down to get into the first team. Um, but there may be a couple who could be Uh, blooded, if you like, in the Europa League group stages um, to give them the experience and and everything else. But yeah, it's a good point. We've got to have a deeper squad. And that is is down to now, at this point, uh, the manager, the owner, the technical director, the board, to make that happen and to ensure that we are in a position where we can cope with Thursday, Sunday, with cup games with the premier league and everything else that is literally their job now this summer
2: Mm -hmm. big
1: job Mm. let me ask you this one we had a couple like this john galt on the discord um, says what do you think Mikel arteta will have learned about himself as a manager if anything this season and on twitter cartoon boldy who's at Cartoon, he's at Cartoon Boldy, but he's Cartoon Steve Bold, said, what improvements would you like to see from Arteta next season? Hmm. Can I give you one? Because there's one very obvious one that springs to mind for me. Sure. And that is the ability to change games in our favor when we concede first, when things are going against us.
2: I if, mean, that is a, a huge that one.
1: That is a huge one, isn't it? And and look, I, I know that ties into the discussions that we've had about quality and the gaps in the squad and the ability to score goals and having presence and having attacking threat. I know that's all part of it, but I also think at this point, it feels like there's something psychological in a way that we have to get over as a team And that is one big improvement that I would like to see from Mikel Arteta. Him from the bench with his substitutes or with tactical tweaks or with players who can respond to adversity a little bit better than some of the ones that we have at the moment.
2: Yeah, if I had to slightly broaden that and also condense it, it would be for me to respond to adversity quicker. So that would apply Mm in-game when we go behind, but also when we lose a game. You know, in this league, you've only got 38 games. And if you want to be in the top four or competing at the very top, you cannot allow a defeat in one game to bleed into the next. Sure. You just can't allow it. And that has happened this season. And it's felt a little bit like it's taken either the team or the manager, time to kind of uh, recalibrate. And Mm. there's just no time for that if you want to be at the top level.
1: Respond quicker, like you lose a game, don't lose the next one.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Whatever that process is of them kind of getting over defeat that somehow seems to cost us another defeat or two along the way, that has to be dramatically sped up. So that when we lose a game, we come back attacking the next one fully focused. And similarly, as you say, within a game, when we go behind, tactically, how do we deal with that mm. to be able to impose ourselves, be aggressive, get back into it? Because at the, at the present time, it's like playing um, – like used to play Goldeneye and you play on like one shot kill mode (laughs) do you know what I mean (laughs) one shot and Arsenal are dead and again that's not really viable in this league look at the look at the Champions look at Manchester City 2-0 down at half time the other day they get back to 2-2 that's the level that is required Um, and we don't really have that in us at the present
1: time yeah and what else I mean what do you think I mean, it's impossible really to say, but uh, he strikes me as um, somebody who will definitely think about every aspect of the season, every game, every performance, every individual performance, his own decisions along the way, on the training ground, selection, and the whole lot. Um, Like if Mikel Arteta... If there's one thing that you think he might be able to take away from this season, I mean, it's really hard to get inside somebody else's head, isn't it? That's the problem.
2: It is, and it's... <clears throat> I mean, if you ask him if he's made mistakes as Arsenal manager, I think he tends to say, yeah, I've made loads. Um, and I'm sure he thinks the same. I, <laughs> I, I kind of... I, I, how can I put it? I sort of want to stop short of just asking him to be somebody that he's not. You know, like I could say, oh, you know, the Abamiang thing is in, is in my mind, certainly. Mm. You know, could he have handled that differently? Was there an outcome that meant Oba was at least available for us until the end of the season? I'm sure he must be reflecting on that and maybe he has absolutely the courage of his convictions and he knows he did the right thing by the squad, by the club in that instance. But when you look at the, the manner in which the goals dried up for us, um, mm. it, I'm sure there'll be some reflection on that. I know it's not clear cut. Do you know what I mean? I know it's not as, as easy as, as that necessarily, but...
1: Yeah, I mean, he, what he learns from that might not necessarily be the way he dealt with that situation, but what kind of recruitment do I, I mean make a, so a, a, Another lesson
2: a, would be don't give out contracts to players who are over 30 and might fall off a cliff at some point, you know? Sure. Um, or if you fear that a player might become…
1: Problematic or yeah, the, disruptive. Yeah, or then
2: yeah. You, yeah, then you have to act proactively. Like it may be that his conclusion from the Aubameyang thing is I should have sold Aubameyang in 2020 um, Mm. when I had the chance and replaced him properly. Whatever it is, Mm. that was not a good situation and it did not have a good outcome for Arsenal ultimately. I think that's fair, isn't
1: it? Yeah. I don't think that's unfair at all. Um, You got a question there?
2: Yeah, a few questions about Granit and his post-match interview. Mo on Twitter said, who do you think Granit was referring to in his post-match? And we had some similar ones about, you know, should he have spoken out? I'll see if I've got another one here.
1: I had one from Joachim E, who's at Joachim Eckel. I think, on Twitter, who said, the media trying to make Shaka a villain for speaking out after the game is quite disgusting. It's posted multiple times from all the big news outlets. He spoke his mind, and rightly so. Um, yeah,
2: Ross Clockend88, was Shaka right to call out his teammates in the post-match interview, should that have been kept in the dressing room? I mean, the f- first thing I want to say, by the way, I sort of said this about Conte and Arteta last time, But I do think we place a lot of stock in what people say, especially in the case of players who have literally been running around for 90 minutes and are very emotional. I do think that you've got to offer that context about what a player says in that moment. They're having a camera and a microphone shoved in their face just after they come off the pitch. Of course, they're responsible for what they say, but it's real heat of the moment stuff. Mm. And I think overanalyzing it is a bit dangerous.
1: I think that's fair. Um, I also think it's worth pointing out that uh, a bit of the Xhaka clip went around on social media last night without the context of the question that was put to him, which was, I think, uh, again, paraphrasing, it was basically like, uh, you know, is this, you know, a failure of young players? This is, you know, this is why you didn't, um, you didn't perform And I think he was basically just saying it's got nothing to do with age. Um, You
2: know, I... I, Yeah, I think that is what he was saying. I don't think he was saying it's the young player's fault. I think he was saying... Yeah, exactly. I don't care about the age.
1: Exactly. And I I also don't believe that he was exempting himself from the comments that he made either. He didn't say... Mm, He didn't say, you know everyone else, or they did this. He used we throughout, you know, and I think that's an important part to to point out. Um, personally, look, I know people have got their issues with him and everything else. I found it refreshing that a player came out and spoke that way in a post match interview. And I think you're right to say that it has been in some ways informed by the like Granite Xhaka had a 90 minute Kit Kat of despair and then went and spoke to Sky afterwards. Right. Um, yeah, we know he's an emotional man. He's an emotional guy. I would prefer him to speak the way he did and say what he said from the heart than to offer some bland, passive sound bites that we've heard a million times before. And, Is there some truth to what he's saying? There probably is. Because maybe they did like something when it came to the big occasion, the big occasion. If you can call a game against Newcastle a big occasion, but what was at stake was big, right? And I I don't know that there's anything particularly wrong with saying that or with challenging your teammates. You know, I don't think he's saying these guys are shit. I don't, you know, get rid of them. They're all wasters. None of that. But I think he's what he's saying is like, guys, come on. When there's something like this at stake, we've got to be better. We're all saying that this morning. We're all saying the performance was under par. So I've got no issue whatsoever with Shaka saying what he said.
2: No. And truthfully, I'm not sure anyone in the dressing room really would either. No. I don't get the sense that as a group, they're like, well, fuck you, Granite. We think we played really well. (laughs) Like they know and they're gutted and they probably do feel like they let the coach down uh, and the fans down. Um, And that they'll carry those scars, Mm -hmm. I'm sure. And, you know, at the end of the day, the media officer comes in that dressing room and says, we need someone to come out and talk about this. Granite puts his hand up. Probably they're thinking, oh, Christ. (laughs) But, you know, I I don't really have an issue with it. Partly because I don't think he was calling out individuals. I mean, what did you make of the line about not really listening to instruction?
1: I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if that was aimed at a single individual or whatever it might be, but... Like, clearly, Any that's... Not-
2: I mean, some people have said maybe playing out from the back. We didn't play out short from the back. We played long a lot.
1: Yeah, I we did. Know. We did. Maybe that's it. I, I don't... I don't know. I don't we know. are guessing. We are guessing. I mean, look, I think as well, it's been whipped up a bit by our old friend Gary Neville on Sky Sports. Yeah, of course,
2: because it's Granite as well, you know. People yeah. have a bias about him and... Um, And people love the Arsenal crisis thing, don't they? So any chance they get to kind of stir that up, they'll take it. And this plays into that. If you choose to take it a certain way. Well, yeah. It's quite
1: a- yeah. And I think Neville misrepresented what he said on Sky TV last night. You know? Yeah, I think so too. I think and, so. and and I mean- like he, as a player, came from a dressing room where if you did something wrong, you were told. Not necessarily by your manager, but by big characters in that dressing room. Roy Keane. Yeah, he played with Roy Keane. Yeah, no. So, if Granit Shaka is vaguely critical of the collective effort, then I really don't know what issue Gary Neville could have with that. He wants accountability. He wants players to be responsible for what they do on the pitch. And then... He's taking issue with Jacker, uh, acknowledging that I don't know what it is. It's just yeah. More, my question more would be, what
2: should he have said? Yeah, you know, what would have been the right thing? Um, yeah, because if he just might.
1: said, "Well, we've got to learn that's from football. this," yeah, it's just one of those days we just didn't, you know, we've got to like take stock now and and uh, you know look forward as a team and as individuals. You know, people would be furious about that as well. But
2: well, that's why footballers come out and do that. To yeah, say nothing, speak in platitudes because you speak. From the heart, or you speak with mm. honesty and you get slated for it. Listen, granted, he wasn't any better, really, I didn't think, than anybody else. I mean, no, I thought Arsenal were poor front to back, um, but I'm not sure he was exempting himself.
1: No, I don't th- I, I don't think,
2: think so. I think he is gutted. I think they all wanted it. I think he desperately wanted it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. And-
2: yeah I I think think that played into the interview
1: to be honest Um, just while we're on Shaka um, here's a couple of questions I guess um, in that sphere um Gautam Batia, I think, uh, on the Discord said, do you think yesterday's performance shows that our need for an upgrade in central midfield is at least as pressing as our need for a striker? Yesterday's game felt like it was lost in the centre of the park in a way that put our defence under pressure and also choked off service to our attack. Given that we can't seem to rely on Partey staying fit for the whole season, what should should we be looking to do in this department in the summer? And I've got a follow-up question, which I'll ask you after that. But I think that's an interesting one because... I was looking at the stats and like, how are we not getting... Martin Odegaard was very quiet. he gave, gave him two passes and Granit Xhaka gave him four passes in 90 minutes. Mm. And, and like, I'm not saying Thomas Partey would have been the man to come in and fix everything about that Arsenal performance, but he was badly missed.
2: Terribly missed. He has been since he came out the side. I think there is a question over... Our reliance on a player who we can't keep
1: fit. Um does that apply to um Does that apply to Kieran Tierney as well?
2: Yeah, it does. I mean he's played about half the available games, Kieran Tierney, since he came to Arsenal. But I think in Party's case it's kind of all the more exaggerated just because I think he is such a in every sense, pivotal player in this team. Mm. It's it's uncanny the parallels with Santi Cazorla to a certain extent in that he genuinely unlocks our midfield. And yet he's prone to these absences. And when he's not there, Mm. we have no real way of replacing him. So coming back to the question, Arsenal need to add something in central midfield. I think that a augments Thomas Partey, but B gives us something in the games when he's not going to be there. Mm. Because if Arsenal are going into Europe next season, there's no way Thomas Partey's playing Thursday, Sunday, every week for the entire campaign with the injury record he's had to date in England.
1: So, I mean, do you think we should be looking for a player who can do what Partey does or a player who can do different things to Partey who can, you know, work alongside him, but also uh, shoulder some of that burden when he's not there?
2: Yeah, I think I think more so the latter. Um, because I think in pure squad building terms, you know, you've got Sambi, who I think they view as someone who could do that party role. So I think he could probably pick up some of those Europa group stage games, things mm-hmm. like that. You might have Mohamed Neni if he sticks around. I think it's really about, you know, someone who you can play with him, can play as an alternative to him we just need a broader skill set in central midfield we just need more players who like Partey can really progress the ball you know who can get between the lines who can dribble past a man or or pass between players and accelerate our game um, it, yeah we need, we need quality and uh, it's something that has to be addressed and we said it last mm-hmm. summer it came and went we said it in january it came and went it has to happen now i mean it, it surely will
1: yeah i mean it is a big issue we do need somebody else in there we need more craft in in that area of the pitch more technical security if you like
2: yeah i think um, that's, that's that's right
1: uh, the other the other sort of follow up question uh, on this was let me see if I can find it here. It was on the Discord. Uh, AB Gooner says, do we need to stop making contract offers on a whim? Just like Elneny was very good previously, he was very bad the last two games. Do we simply uh, look to raise the floor of the team? Like, are there players in this squad? I, I, I'm asking this and I know it's a rhetorical question. Are there players in this squad whose limits have been reached in terms of what they can contribute?
2: Yes, but I don't think that makes them entirely without use. Mm. Uh, basically, my opinion on something like Nani it doesn't change. You know, he's not a different player to who I thought he was 2 games ago. He's the same guy. And like, if you're asking me, is there a value in keeping him as like your fifth central midfielder so that you have bodies and experience in the squad on a relatively low contract, my answer would still be the same, yes. If you're asking me, does Eddie Nketiah, um, is he the answer to our striking problem? Should we be handing him a five-year deal and promising him regular game time? My answer would probably be no. So I do think that as tempting as it is to kind of apply a sort of catch all thing of like, don't extend anybody, I think it has to be assessed case by case. Um, mm. And for me, like, you know, there are different judgments or different values attached to different players in different situations. And
1: uh, maybe the, yeah. maybe the, the point we made about um signings and what we can do because of Europa League football will have an impact on some of those decisions as well. Because Yeah, exactly. We we need depth. Mohamed El is a perfectly serviceable Europa League central midfielder slash backup midfielder in the Premier League. It's I don't think he's the kind of player who, who brings you down, you know? But the question might be, is the easiest thing to do if we want to spend money on good forwards, another good central midfielder, maybe a left back, whatever, maybe a right back, whatever it might be, like, is part of that having to say, okay, we give Elneny a deal because that then allows us to Funnel resources into places where they're better uh, used. If that makes sense.
2: Exactly. It's a question of priorities, isn't it? We, we're not making ten signings, so <clears throat> it's about, especially without Champions League money. Like you say, we will have to cut our cloth. We will have to make decisions. Mm. Um, and if retaining El Nenny and him taking up a place in the squad enables you to do more in one of like the the big deals, like a striker, say then so be it I'm comfortable with that Mm. um but other people won't be you know it's kind of I guess it's your 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 individual valuation or analysis of a a player Mm. Uh, but there is a sort of economic aspect to this and um in terms of just putting down cash this summer I think there's only so much that we'll be able to do um
1: do we need to get out of here do we? Yeah, probably. Actually, can yeah. I can I just ask one more very quick one? Yes. Um, Dominic Doherty, who's at Dominic Doherty too, says, "Amazon have paid mega bucks for the dramatic final day twist, haven't they?" <laughs> and on the Discord, Garza said, "Is the lasagna chef from 2006 available in Norwich on Saturday night?" <laughs> I mean, there. It is a very, 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 very slim chance that a miracle could occur, but it's not impossible.
2: No, it's not. And Norwich, did they pick up a point away from home at the weekend? Uncharacteristically. Uh, team of Pukki back among the goals at Wolves. So. Warming
1: up. He's warming up for his hat-trick against Spurs.
2: Yeah, exactly. He's going to show Harry Kane, what a real centre-forward looks like. I mean, um, honestly, mm, I don't hold out a lot of hope.
1: Oh, I don't. Um, like a minuscule, tiny amount of, of hope, like a subatomic particle of hope. But, you know, let's say, I don't know, someone, Eric Dyer. Does a big clumsy Eric Dyer thing and gets sent off very early in the game, and you know, listen,
2: anything's possible. Anything truly is possible. I just hope we beat Everton and mm. that we finish the season on, if not a high, then you know, at least with a good result. Because yeah. this has been a a long uh, roller coaster of a campaign. But one that broadly I feel has been positive and, you know, one one of the most positive things about it has been that relationship between the team and the fans and it would be a real shame if the final day of the season Mm. that was kind of marred by, you know, a defeat or or even a draw. So I really hope we can win that game. And Who knows, our consolation prize may be relegating Frank Lampard.
1: That would be quite something, wouldn't it? That would be quite something. (laughs) Um, Yeah,
2: you know, it's a a little, it's a little, Philip, I guess. Well, look,
1: who knows what will happen at the weekend. Um, Football is weird and crazy. And like you say, it's a a roller coaster. And after the last loop-de-loop, I'm feeling a little bit sick and I want to get off and have a good puke. So um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, safe travels back uh, to London, James. Thanks. Um, Yes,
2: I leave imminently.
1: All right, we will leave it there as well. To you guys, if you've got this far... Uh, I hope it was in some way cathartic. I feel a little bit better, I have to say, after talking about it still um, with that kind of feeling in the pit of my stomach. But I do feel a bit better, and I hope you guys do too. As always, thank you very much for being here. We will have another Arscast for you on Friday. Um, Also, this weekend, of course, um, we're going to be doing the live event at union chapel which we were obviously hoping would be a good mood event um but those circumstances were out of our control nevertheless uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, so many of you there having a good chat about arsenal having a bit of crack as well um we'll give you details of that on friday's arscast i think the doors open around six thirty. show is around seven thirty. um So that's all to come. Lots still to come uh, this week, this weekend. And maybe, maybe, maybe there'll be a final twist in this season. You never know. All right. We will catch you on the next one. Take it easy. Bye-bye.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.